Show number 52 of Look at His Butt, LT and JK Talk Trek. We could play a game of 52 pickup. Where we scatter all the shows? Yeah. Yeah, because they're so so well organized and, and coherent. And show 52. Wow. Wow. Exciting. That's like a year's worth of shows it if we is. did one a week. That's true. It has been, um, what, we started in May of last year? May or June? I think it was June. Okay. So it's been a little over a year. But it's, as we keep saying, it's more than 52 actual shows because there have been so many special editions <laughs> that have come out. Special, special sci-fi episode. channel extra editions, yes. With insight. Okay. So what do we have for, uh, what if, what's on the menu for today? We have a lot of wonderful things on our menu, but what we want to start about, start out with is um, my Star Trek fitness Yay! program. Because we haven't heard one of those in a while. We're yes, very it, excited it's been a while, that. but boy, am I fit. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the topic for this week's fitness was the immunity syndrome. Ooh. And very interesting to me, I have avoided this episode for a really long time. I hadn't seen it in ages because I always think of it as the episode... Where Spock goes into the amoeba. <laughs> and for me, any episode that starts out with, in my brain, where Spock, it's like, you know, put it at the bottom of the list. Is that like, where's Waldo? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, if the main idea of the episode has something to do with Spock and not Kirk, I'm kind of like, I don't, uh, I don't care. Okay, well, I'll watch it, you know. So I'm watching, I'm going, oh my God, probably... Seven minutes of the last court, the last act, if that, are Spock going into the, the amoeba? amoeba and what happens. The rest of it is all Kirk. Oh. So it, it's, it's a great episode. There's Kirk light all over the place. He looks so gorgeous. But I have to tell you, this is, hands down, the splodiest episode <laughs> ever. Because every time they get near the amoeba, go through the membrane, the amoeba sends out a... a uh, you know, they're in the eddies and the, <laughs> the waves of the amoeba goo and everything. They get thrown all around. Oh. And they are constantly being thrown out of their chairs. And it's really funny. <laughs> because at one point, and they're not even at the last time they're thrown out of the chairs. You can tell they're tired of being thrown out of the chairs. Because what they're now doing is getting out of the chairs <laughs> in a crouched position. And sort of getting down on the ground. And hoping that looks like... Being thrown out of the chair. It's like, oh, I am so sick of this. But then, suddenly, they get a second wind, and there's one. <laughs> I'm, I'm on the elliptical at, gym, at the gym and just burst out laughing. Behind Kirk, as they're thrown out of the chairs, or as the, the explosion hits or whatever, a stuntman does a cartwheel. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and not to be outdone, right after that, like within a split second of it, Kirk's reaction to whatever his caused that cartwheel is he spins in the captain's chair (laughs) now he doesn't go all the way around he spins halfway and comes back but i'm thinking they did a take where bill spun all the way around probably three times and the director told him that looks frivolous (laughs) so he toned it down but um that that was that's so funny that was amazing now oh my god (laughs) Basket alert. Mm. We will be posting a screen cap. Mm. Um, this this is the episode where, in addition to Spock going into the amoeba, 
when they get in the amoeba, everybody gets faint. Well, not everybody. Mm -hmm. McCoy calls up to the bridge and says, half the people on this ship just fainted. And you notice that every woman who's lined up to get into sickbay, it's a woman. I mean, every crew person who fainted was a woman. So that's kind of creepy. But Uhura, you know, gets dizzy on Mm -hmm. the bridge. And right after... At one point where, oh, Kirk is talking to her and telling her, send all this information to Starfleet. And he goes to step back down to the captain's chair. He gets woozy. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about Kirk getting woozy is the camera comes around as he's sort of recovering himself. And he's holding on to the captain's chair. And there's an incredible basket shot. But the nice thing is, normally, you know, he's walking and Mm -hmm. moving. And, you know, you have to watch for those basket shots. He stops <laughs> to steady himself, and the Kirk light is going overtime on his crotch, and it's just there. And, and, and you know, I, I brought the DVD mm-hmm. over and made Lena watch it. She, of course, fought me the whole way. She did not want to look at another <laughs> Kirk basket shot. And it was good. It's incredible. It was very, very good. And what did we decide? Was that 10? No, it was 9, uh, 9.50 to 9.55. Yeah. Yeah. So if you got it's the DVDs, right there, right there. In fact, the thing I like the most is right before that shot, the full, the, the frontal shot, there's a shot of him from the side. And a he, sidle shot. A shot, sidle shot, and he's sort of got his legs on the same plane, and there's profile <laughs> of his, I guess it's his erection right there, just right it, there. Oh, it's, it's great. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. Other nice thing in this episode. Kirk openly leers at a yeoman twice. Because at the beginning, they're talking about, oh, he's doing his captain's log, and everybody on the ship is exhausted. We've been through some terrible missions, and we're all looking forward to shore leave. And I, myself, must confess, I'm looking forward to relaxing on some beautiful... And a yeoman goes by this banking list, and he leers at her and says, Planet. (laughs) And then at the end of the episode... yeoman. Right, (laughs) but you know what he's thinking. Then, at the end of the episode, when everything is okay Uh again, he goes, and I am still looking forward to some time on a beautiful, and there's a yeoman again, planet. (laughs) So that's a code word, then, for woman I'm about to fuck. It's a planet. It's a planet. (laughs) We should start using that. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) There's a planet. There's a planet. (laughs) Also, the other thing I have to point out is uh, this this, uh, episode kind of changed my mind. I have, as I've said before, I've never liked that wraparound shirt. Mm-hmm. I think it looks girly. It looks damn sexy in this <laughs> episode. In fact, there's one point where it's hanging like a little loose, mm-hmm. you know, a little more open than mm-hmm. it is. And there's just something really erotic about that. Like, I don't know. It's, it's just loose. And you can see just a little more than you, you yeah. normally can. And it looks... It looks wonderful. And I usually hate that. It usually makes him look like he's got man boobs. <sighs> I haven't seen that one in so long. Well, it, it's more than the one where Spock goes into the amoeba. Mm-hmm. And I want to also point out something um, our good friend Wildcat mm-hmm. refers to this as the episode where Spock pilots the shuttlecraft with steak knives. <laughs> and if you look, when he's driving the, the shuttlecraft... There's these things that are supposed to be levers that he's, uh-huh. he's pulling. Are they? They are there? steak knives in a knife in the, one of those angled knife holder things. <laughs> you know, whatever. But if McCoy can operate with salt shakers, it was whatever was on sale down at the Goodwill that week. That's what they made <laughs> the special effects out of. We know this. I think so. Oh, that's great. Um, how did they kill it? <laughs> what do they do? I don't even remember. Oh, they they um. 
Spock flies the shuttlecraft into it? No, he gives them a lot of information so that they're able to um, place a uh, a photon photon torpedo in exactly the right spot where it yeah. needs to be to blow up. So you know it is floaty. Okay. And uh, and they blow it up, and they're just barely far enough away, and they've got the shuttlecraft in a tractor beam. Uh huh. <laughs> and uh, and they manage to get Spock out as oh. well. This episode also, I think, is a great is great fodder for people who are into a Spock McCoy relationship. Oh yeah. Because what I was thinking is, I've always noticed that it looks to me like Spock is very much in love with Kirk. Mm-hmm. And. of the time, it looks to me like Kirk knows this and is teasing him, but does not return the feeling at all. Well, in this episode, it kind of looks like, okay, Spock has finally gotten the hint it ain't going to happen, and has transferred all of that to McCoy. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that would make John happy, wouldn't it? We should talk to her about this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So, um, yeah, the sort of bitchery that goes on between the two of them is sort of lover's bitchery. (laughs) Bitchery. Yeah. That's good. Well, I'm glad you watched that. I'm, I'm sort of looking forward to um, doing the screen capping and just seeing a little bit more of it. I wanted to point out that um, the DVD, which I'm now holding in my hand, is uh, number 24 in the releases. And for reasons that I can't even imagine, they put a picture of Chapel on the cover, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. I mean, didn't this make the sales go down because they had a picture of Chapel? And then you turn it over, and there's this gorgeous picture of Kirk mm-hmm. right here. Mm-hmm. Why is this not on the cover? Why? Right, and that gorgeous picture is from... Uh... Uh, Obsession. Oh, okay. I yeah, that's see what the other the one... Was on yeah, the so this is, this is him on the planet right. on Obsession trying to figure out what's going on. Why is that not on the cover? Morons, morons. Oh, well. So speaking of Kirk leering at yeoman and <laughs> sexiness and everything, I just want to share something that was in the Contra Costa Times, mm-hmm. one of the local papers here. And they were talking about Justin Timberlake, who I'm only marginally aware of who that is. Mm-hmm. It's some... He's a singer. Boy band guy? Yep. Okay. All right. He, he used to be um, strictly a boy band guy, but he sort of tried to um, extend his coolness factor by recording songs with actual black people. No, really. Um, so he's he's considered more cool than he used to be. Okay. So apparently um, his new album is titled something like Justin Timberlake, Sex God or something. Okay. So the Contra Costa Times, very rightly so, um, takes him to task on this. And I just mm-hmm. want to quote just a little bit of the article. It says, Rolling Stone is dead wrong. Justin Timberlake is not the king of sex. Not because he's only 25 or because he's kind of silly, or because no one can be called the king of sex just because he himself puts the word sex (laughs) in his own album title. No, Justin Timberlake can never, ever be the king of sex for three reasons. One, Hugh Hefner. Two, Tom Jones slash William Shatner. Three, Burt Reynolds. (laughs) And then, I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but it goes on to explain that this... uh, the writer of this article was going to give Tom Jones and William Shatner each their own bullet point, uh-huh. but on second thought, realized she had never, she or he, had never seen them together at the same time <gasps> and maybe the same person. Oh. But this person goes on. These are all men inspiring generations of maleness. Now we're into man crush. They've taught us. They've led us. They've showed us the way to diversity by sleeping with green women from <laughs> other planets. 
the day Justin Timberlake pulls the kind of rap Kirk pulled on alien women to persuade them to fool around with a puny earthling is the day he gets my vote. Not a second sooner. <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. I think it, it's so true. We have talked about Kirk as role model. And for people not to recognize this, oh. is it, that this has to be pointed out. I know. People can be so clueless sometimes. And, you know, it was something that we just didn't see in other Star Trek series. You know, you didn't see Picard talking his way into the pants of every female alien that, that he came across. No. Because he couldn't. <laughs> and you just didn't see anybody exuding this maleness, yeah, you know? exactly. As, or, or it came off as kind of cartoonish or sort of parody, you know, Riker's like, Riker, like parody. Yes, exactly, Kirk. exactly. And every time I, I see things like this or I read these articles, which are obviously intended to be humorous when they talk about it, all I can think about is the interview that he did on E! with the lunch <laughs> thing. <laughs> and, and we have spread the word on that now, thanks to our party. My God, I mean, you could show that tape to guys as a lesson, that could be a lesson mm-hmm. in how... How to get a woman so flustered that she just falls into your bed because she doesn't know what else to do with herself at that point. Because, it, and it's not about... I mean, that's the thing that astonishes me about that whole E! interview is that he's not being aggressive. Mm-mm. It's totally underplayed. He's not being an alpha monkey. No, it. he's not. And you said underplayed. It's not even being played. No, that, that's play right. You're right. implies he's putting it on. And this is just a natural part of Bill. This is how... He responds to women. Yeah. And and he is so he's so male in a non alpha monkey way. And I think that's really what's so important about his maleness and the way he wears it is that he's taken out the alpha monkey part of mm-hmm. it. And that's why women love it because it's the maleness without the asshole. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And how often do you get that, right? It's, well, it's, yeah. It's kind of rare, I think, to find that that confidence and that sexiness and everything without that the, the weird, you know, territorialness or or fragile egoness, which is kind of the opposite mm-hmm. of that. He just doesn't seem to have that. Right. And that's amazing. And how irresistible is that? Completely. It's completely irresistible. And that's what he brought to that character. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kirk had all of that because of Shatner. And I like how this, this um, article writer this is pointing out this is something that that he inspired young men to want to do, to want to be, that he, sh- he yeah. showed them how this could be done. Mm-hmm. And I think um, we're not as stupid sometimes as, as TV would would like us to be that we do know the difference between reality and what we see on a TV show. Most of us are not asking, why didn't you use the shuttlecraft? You know, we know why they didn't use the shuttlecraft. But I also think we have a perception of truth. And you can, in many cases, read an actor into a role mm-hmm. or, or, or see where he's, he's drawing on himself. And I also know that when you're writing a series... You know, you've got to keep cranking them out. And if you find out your actors have certain strengths, that's what you're going to write to. Mm-hmm. And I always think of the episode in um, TNG where um, Dr. Crusher and Data tap dance. Well, you do this because you have two mm-hmm. actors who you find out, oh, my God, they can both really tap dance. Mm-hmm. We've got to write something for mm-hmm. it. Oh, my God, this guy can totally seduce women like nobody's business. I mean, look at him. He's banging my girlfriend mm-hmm. and my wife, and they're both <laughs> loving it. And I found it inspiring. I'm writing that into the character. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I, that's so funny. Um, I, I really agree with that. Um, I was just thinking of how they're using that. Um, it's very interesting how they're using it in Boston Legal now. Because I think they're, they're doing two things at once, and they both work for me. One is that they're playing Denny Crane's character as the womanizer. You know, he's had six wives, and basically he'll bang any woman that, that catches his eye. Well, more than just women now, anything. Because we've seen the doll. The doll. <laughs> but, but he's that... But at the same time, we've seen him in scenes where um, that the womanizer, the sort of parody of himself thing, goes away, and you see the actual sexiness and charm underneath it, which is the Shatner thing mm-hmm. that comes out, and you do understand why he is irresistible to women, and why he keeps getting married, and why these women will sleep with him, because there's something there, and that, that Shatner thing is right there. I find it interesting, too, that Bill is aware enough, and the writers are, are able to count on him being aware enough to be able to to play the the more offensive side of that or the more insensitive mm-hmm. side of it like in the the last episode that that we just watched or that we watched last week where um he he can't understand why Shirley is offended mm-hmm. by the doll and that you know mm-hmm. bill bill is that's the difference between bill and an alpha monkey an alpha monkey the seduction pleasure is all on his side mm-hmm. and that's what it's all about mm-hmm. and i think with bill he is always aware of what the other person mm-hmm. is feeling, what she's thinking, is she enjoying it? Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that's where it becomes the non-alpha monkey. Yeah. It would be so easy for his character, for Denny Crane, to be this really offensive, horny old goat, creepy old man. Yes. And it's it's like a step away from that. Mm-hmm. but because Walking of, a very it's fine a, line. It's a fine line, but because it's Bill and because he knows how to play that and because underneath the parody of the sex-crazed old guy is this real, true sexiness, which depends so much on not what he wants for himself, but what he wants for whatever woman he happens to be banging. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It's such, it's so rich. I just don't think you see that kind of stuff on television very much. No. And and Bill is so good at that. He is really wonderful at that. It's such a nice layer to that role. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, Justin Timberlake. No way. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, maybe when you're 75. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe if you went, you know, and took like, I don't know, 30 years of Bill lessons. But 40 years from now, who is going to be talking about how sexy Justin I Timberlake is? So. 40 minutes from now. No, I don't think so. Bill, just Bill. Bill rules. <laughs> um, let's take a break. Okay. We have something good. We have something really okay, good. Okay, let's not build it up too much okay. because the last time I we know, tried to do this, we built work. it up okay. and then it fizzled. We think we have something really good. <laughs> let's put it that way. We're going to have treats. Yeah, we're going to have treats. It's time for the, the chocolate and the white chocolate. So um, hold on. We'll be right back. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before.
This is TSFPN.com, the sci-fi podcast network. You've found the best podcasts in the universe. The following program deals with a mature theme in a mature manner. We urge discretion with respect to family viewing. How many people do you think remember that music? I don't know, but I'm wishing that we had some some more incredible s- sweeping s- Beethoven music <laughs> to lead into this finding of the holy grail it, of Shatner. I agree. And and remember just a couple of minutes ago we were saying that we had something really cool and we do. This we time, do. It we actually do. Technology was our friend. Oh man. Oh, <laughs> what a relief. Boy, okay. Listeners, I hope you're all sitting down. What we have just watched and are going to tell you about Mm -hmm. is the 10th level. We saw it. The mythical movie that you were probably all starting to believe William Shatner actually never made (laughs) because you hear about it and no one has seen it. And now we... We, the butt girls. We've seen it. We've seen it. And we're going to tell you about it. Yeah. And this, this this is a scoop. This is an exclusive. We're full of them lately. Because you will not get this anywhere else. You will never get a review of the 10th level. Just, you won't. Because nobody else has seen it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we want to say thank you to, to Shannon. Yes. Who had a big hand in getting this happening. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible, it, yes. I mean, our, 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 our email exploded with happiness. We were so happy. So um, let's talk a little bit about the background for this film because you really need to understand the background to understand the film and what happens in it, I think. Okay. So this was made in 1975. It was a made-for-TV movie um, starring William Shatner, which we were all very pleased about. And as you, if you remember that music, that was the music for a CBS special presentation <laughs> with the little graphics that went along with it. This has never been released on video or dvd not officially released Mm -hmm. so that's why it's so hard to find and i'm not quite sure why they never released it because it is very good yes it's and all the way through it i was thinking what an incredible thing to be watching at this particular moment in (laughs) in time yeah given um current events but um go on with describing more about the movie so let me tell you about the the story okay so if you it's on imdb you can look it up on imdb and i'll read you the plot summary because it's it's good It's inspired by the Stanley Milgram obedience research. This TV movie chronicles a psychology professor, played by William Shatner, um, his study to to determine why people, such as the Nazis, were willing to follow orders and do horrible things to others. Professor Stephen Turner leads students to believe that they are applying increasingly painful electric shocks to other subjects when they fail to perform a task correctly, and is alarmed to see how much pain the students can be convinced to inflict, quote, in the name of science. That's pretty good. Um, if you pop over to Wikipedia, there's a pretty good article on Stanley Milgram himself. Um, and I'll just read this because it's a little interesting, too. He, he So the experiments were real. Yes. And it says that at the end of the show. He did these in 1963. Um, and in the ensuing controversy that erupted, the APA held up his application for membership for a year because of questions about the ethics of his work, but eventually granted him full membership. Ten years later, in 74, he published a book called Obedience to Authority and was awarded the Annual Social Psychology Award by the AAAAS. Um, 
Inspired in part by the 1961 trial of Adolf Eichmann, his models were later also used to explain the 1968 Mille massacre, including authority training in the military, depersonalizing the enemy through race and cultural differences. In 1976, CBS presented a made-for-television movie about the obedience experiments called The Tenth Level with William Shatner. Starring as Stephen Hunter, a Milgram-like scientist, Milgram himself was a consultant for the film, though his personal life did not resemble that of the Shatner character. And um, just as a side note, I also knew about Milgram because um, Peter Gabriel wrote a song called We Do What We're Told, which was subtitled Milgram's 37, referring to a number of the number of fully obedient participates in Milgram's experiment 18, which was called a peer administered shocks. In this particular experiment, 37 out of 40 participants administered the full range of shocks, up to 450 volts they thought they were giving, ob- the highest obedience rate Milgram found in his whole series. That's a lot of electricity, 450 mm-hmm. volts. So it, it's a good song, and it has very much of the, the same thing. Um, so this was, what, an hour, almost two hours? I almost guess it would have been two hours with, with commercials. commercials. It yeah. would have been two hours. Um, part of what is so amazing about this is it's, it's, it's a very well-thought-out drama. It's not schlock. It's mm-hmm. not kitsch. Not at all. And when you consider it was made in 75, when Bill was doing so much schlock kitsch work just to be a working actor, and it's so amazing that things like impulse survive. Really? And, <laughs> and this? this is um, it's, it's almost an archaeological project to, to find yeah. it. Um, so that that's amazing, but it's it's a strong script with, um, for the most part, very strong performances. Mm-hmm. And even though I knew the, the basic gist of the story, there were times when I was going, um, where, where is this going? And his realization at the end, as his, his mm-hmm. girlfriend is pushing him to realize how in his administration of the tests, he was unwittingly testing himself. Mm-hmm. It's very moving. It, it was really, really good. Um, I, we're going to do spoilers now. So yeah. if you, well, I already did one. So well, okay. So you did a spoiler, <laughs> but but here, the big spoiler, which um, if you haven't seen this and you plan on it, this this is actually a spoiler. I would say because it's pretty effective if you don't know this, right? And actually, when you were telling me that as we were watching yeah. it, I was thinking, oh yeah, that would have been really cool if I hadn't known that. Uh, but I knew, no, I knew it before okay. you told me. Um, so. He designs this experiment where um, people answer an ad or something. It's at a university, and they come in, and they think they're participating in a learning experiment where one person is the teacher and the other is the learner, and the learner is put in a room where the teacher cannot see them. And the teacher reads them a list of words, and they this, the learner has to recall um, a correct pair of words. And if they get it wrong, they get an electric shock, and it's an increasing number of shocks, like 1 through 24 or something. Mm-hmm. And the first one is very, very mild, and the... the you're assuming that the highest one is, in fact, really painful. Um, so the subjects do this, and they can't see the learner, but they're communicating through microphones. And somewhere around the 10th level, um, the learner starts to complain about the pain. And from that point on, the learner is actually begging them to stop because it's so painful. But the teacher is doing their job, and there's a guy in a white coat who's presumably a scientist saying well you agreed to do this and the other person volunteered too the experiment experiment requires this you know you have to do this let's just move on as unemotionally as possible Mm -hmm. 
And they don't actually, I thought it was very well done that they don't coerce them. There is nobody with a gun standing there. Mm -hmm. And they're not saying, you have to do this or else. They're just saying, you agreed to do this. Mm -hmm. And it's an experiment. And we're trying to find out something about science and learning. So you need to uphold your end of the bargain. And most people go along with that, even though they themselves are horribly conflicted and get hysterical and don't want to do it. They do it anyway. Um, and only a few people actually get up and walk out and refuse mm-hmm. to do it. So the big reveal at the end is that they weren't giving anybody electric shocks. They believed they were, but that was all put on just to see if they would go through and flip that last switch. And they, they were debriefed at the end and told this. Um, so the second part of it, it's actually kind of a two-part movie. The first mm-hmm. part is the whole experiment and how people go through it. The second part is this court-martial, essentially, where Shatner's character... I mean, it really was it like court-martial. It was very much like court-martial. Like, oh, court-martial. Where's Cog- Cogswell? Um, so uh, Shatner's character is being hauled up on these ethics charges about whether he did it. So um, the people who participated in the experiment are brought in to talk about what lasting effect this might have had on them. And that's really interesting. It's It's very interesting. First of all, I thought during the part where they're doing the experiment... The, the people who were, were questioning the authority figure and going, but I, I'm hurting him and I don't want to do this anymore. That was very moving. Mm-hmm. And then when they came back and had to tell how it made them feel, especially the one woman who... Mm-hmm. Um, she was German. She was German, but apparently had left Germany as a child, but went back after the war to, to visit people. And they, she was saying they all seemed so nice and she couldn't understand how they could have done these things. And she said... Now she understood. And I mean, that just, it goes right through you. Yeah, it's yeah it, it, it was it was amazing. Um, and what, what Shatner's character says is that this capacity to do what we're told is in all of us, really. Mm-hmm. And that's the scary thing, is that with enough obedience to authority, people will pretty much do anything to other people, no matter how horrible it is. And another interesting um, thing was learning that based on, they had previously interviewed people saying, mm. "Yes, um, do you think you could inflict pain mm-hmm. on, on somebody? And, you know, almost everybody said, no, no, no I, 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 I couldn't, I absolutely couldn't. And then they come in and, and they are able to. And they do it, yeah. So it, it's a really powerful drama. And then at the very end, when when the Shatner's character Turner finally has to look at himself to to see if he flipped the last switch, metaphorically speaking, mm-hmm. by making the, the the teacher characters suffer, and he has to admit that he did right, and he was able to do it in the same way by depersonalizing the whole thing. Yep. I'm just doing an experiment, kind of the way his. Um, cohort or whatever you want to call it his colleague who mm-hmm. was the other authority figure was explaining in the court scene yep. that well you know you have to maintain objectivity and they kept pressing him saying but how did you feel well that wasn't my job and mm-hmm. you know it was it was brought home in a very powerful way yeah it's a it's a great drama i, I like the fact that um at two hours or an hour and 42 or whatever it was a little long mm-hmm. um but i think that's because we're not used to that kind of drama now and I, I thought that there were a lot of scenes that um, were allowed to play out mm-hmm. in a good way, which you don't see on television very much. Right. Everything is so compressed now, and everything is like cut, 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 cut. And there were long scenes that, that went on, 
and allowed they were allowed to build. I thought there was a lot of emotion that was built up over a course of maybe a whole five minute scene. Right. I kind of wish that in the scenes where they were exploring um, the personal life of this character, that they had gone, they had done a slightly better job of showing. I don't know, whatever, coldness or whatever was at the core of him. Because we got these hints of he'd had this relationship with mm-hmm. this woman and it hadn't worked out. And, but, but why? What, what was it? You mm-hmm. know, and I think we could have been led a little further into that. Yeah. And also this whole thing with the graduate student that almost did not serve the story at all because you could say, oh, well, he's rejecting her because he's a cold man. He's rejecting her because she's a graduate <laughs> student and he's the professor. Yeah. The, you the, know. <laughs> the, it was it was interesting. So one of the things, as you were saying, that they could have been clear about also, right from the very beginning, I was so unclear about whether the woman who was working with him was his ex-wife or not because mm-hmm. they just were not being clear about that. Right. And then... He had this cute little blonde graduate student who was assisting him, and it was very unclear what their relationship was, Mm -hmm. because there's a scene where she goes to great lengths to explain to him that this guy she's just been talking to, she's not sleeping with him or having a relationship with him. And then immediately they go into another discussion where it's very clear that she still calls him professor, and they're only It's like, what the hell is going on Mm -hmm. here? And as you were saying, maybe that was just to introduce some tension, but it was weird. Yes. It was very weird. Um. But they, I, I thought they did also a good job, and Shatner did a good job of playing, too, how his character, Turner, really is a manipulator in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. that he's very concerned with his own agenda and getting other people to do what he wants to, right. them to do for him and getting the guy who has tenure, who is well played by Ozzie Davis. How wonderful to see, like, a black guy who has tenure in the psychology department at a university. A major university. It's supposed to be at Rutgers. Yeah, and and having all this authority and everything, and Shatner's like the guy who needs his approval. That was Mm -hmm. nice. You don't see that too often. Um, You know, Turner trying to get all these people to do what he wants, because that's the way he knows how to do it. And, you know, as you see him in these scenes, you're always... um, slightly suspicious of him mm-hmm. you know he's saying to this woman that he used to see oh come on I, I i need your statistical mind come on help me help me do this just come on do it for me just do it right right <laughs> like that's a little slimy mm-hmm. <laughs> but but well done by him i yes. think because he doesn't really realize his own sliminess mm-hmm. um and uh i like the fact that they leave things sort of unresolved at the end you know you don't find out whether he gets tenure or whatever right that they were happening so that that, that was And and that, again, is untypical of what we're used to, to leave anything Mm open-ended, to to say the point of this movie was to raise these questions for you, the viewer. Mm -hmm. And we've raised them for the characters, and we've raised them for you. Now go home and think about it. Mm -hmm. So um, the second half, the court-martial portion of it, focused a lot on one of the people who was a teacher in the experiment. Um, And he was supposed to be this young Vietnam vet guy named uh, Barry. And he uh, flips out during this, and he's the one who's sort of the the crux point for the court martial, <laughs> <laughs> because they think that he's the one who is going to have the most lasting damage, because it really did freak him out in a big way. And he comes back and tells his version of how he felt afterwards, and it's really interesting that what he says is, "I'm grateful to the professor for." 
showing me what I really am. And he doesn't, he's not angry. He says he's afraid. He's afraid mm-hmm. of himself. Right. But it, it's, it's very ambiguous. I like the fact that it was ambiguous, but yeah. why is he grateful to this guy for freaking him out and, and, you know, showing him that, that he's, you know, a, a base person. Why isn't he angry? And why isn't he mad that he had to go through this and that he was freaked out for weeks and weeks? You mm-hmm. know? There's still some, I think there's still a lingering respect for authority there. Because of the situation, the experiment, yeah. and because Turner is a professor and because he's in the psychology department, like, yeah, you know, he did this horrible thing to me, but it must have been for a good reason because he's a professor and I'm just this schmo who was in the army. So I, that was ambiguous, too. Right, but, yeah. right. This had a lot of, of nice shades of gray throughout. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, so there was some silly stuff. Oh, well, of course. So let's talk about a little bit of the silly stuff. Um the first thing, which was hilarious, and we had to watch it twice, <laughs> was this cute little grad student um, assistant who's played by Lindsay Krause, who was in lots and lots of television mm-hmm. things over time, um, is, I guess, coming on to him. This yeah. is after she justifies her r- conversation with somebody saying, but he's not my boyfriend. And she, she gives him what she calls a non-intimate massage. And he mumbles something like, oh, non-intimate massage. Well, you know what a non-intimate massage is? is when you massage someone's aura. Because <laughs> we do that to our dog. It freaks them out. A non-intimate massage. I mean, to me, pretty much non-intimate means you're not actually putting your fingers between their legs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what non-intimate means to me. Okay, okay. So now we know where your boundaries yeah, wh- are. But she puts her hand down his pants. Well, more than down his pants, I swear to God. You know, she reaches down below camera range, yeah. but she's reaching around in front. She grabs him somewhere. And, she and he grabs gets, him. He, he kind of jumps up out of the couch and is like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Don't do that. Why? Why is he saying that? So that was weird. But, but wonderful. It was wonderful. His butt looked good throughout. He was wearing oh, yeah. some nice tight pants. Yes. Yes. Um, we appreciate it. And that. amazingly, for a mid '70s movie, he wasn't in the worst of '70s wardrobe. No, it, it, and his toupee was not bad. Mm-hmm. Nice sideburns. We yes, both agreed like there the were nice sideburns. He, his face looked really nice, and he looked very slim and trim. Mm-hmm. And, he looked very fit. And the, the clothes, you know, I was noticing what you're saying that the wardrobe was not bad, but the clothes fit him really well. Whoever did the wardrobe did a good job, unless those were his own clothes, <laughs> which they could have been. But um, no, he he looked good in those clothes. Very mm-hmm. nice. Um, I noticed that the guy who, uh, in the experiments was supposed to be the learner in all of them, because it was the same guy for each teacher, although they didn't know that, looked exactly like Ray Bradbury. (laughs) And I said he looks like he's the grandfather of the guy who plays the Windows in the current Mac and Windows machine, um, Mac versus Windows Uh commercials, and kind of sidebar, I didn't know this, of course Lena knew it because she knows everything, the guy who's playing the Mac is the kid older now, who played Brandon in Galaxy, Galaxy Quest. Quest. Yep, that's him. Oh, that was so cool. He's gone on to great things. Uh, so yeah, Ray Bradbury. Um, <laughs> there's a scene where where Bill is talking to Ozzie Davis, and as part of his business, he takes a cigarillo, I guess, or something, off his mantelpiece, and he starts smoking it, and I swear it's one of those extra long Slim Jims. <laughs> <It> just, <laughs> I said it was a pepperoni. It was like 
12 inches long. I've seen slim cigars, and they are not as slim as that. That was like smoking a pencil. It was long. It was really long. And Bill's puffing away on it. It was a lot. We both just cracked up laughing because it was so funny. Also, he faked us out on the swallow. Twice. Yeah. Twice. He picked up a glass of something, and he almost drank from mm-hmm. it, and then he just didn't do it at the last minute. I also liked the business, and this had to be completely spontaneous to, to just not have to stop the take. When the waiter served the martini <gasps> yes. to Bill, and it was supposed to be for Ossie Davis, and while he's talking, Bill just moved it over to he did. Ossie, just the way you would in a real restaurant. Yes, that was good. You know, instead of, okay, stop, let's do it. He put the glass down in front of the wrong person, because... We knew he had ordered wine. We're yeah. sitting there going, who serves wine in a martini glass? That was well done. Um, this was filmed on video, and according to the credits at the end, it was done on the CBS soundstage in New York, except mm-hmm. for the exterior shots. Right. Um, and it, it looked like it was filmed live, pretty mm-hmm. much. And it was all well done. You know, It was like well blocked and everything. Right. You could see what was happening. Um, and the set decorations looked a little set-y. Mm-hmm. But, um, the whole thing visually had a lot of look of the mid-70s soap operas. Yeah, it did. That's they probably filmed it on some of the soap opera sets. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. But uh, yeah, there, that that little thing in the restaurant, I thought that that was pretty good. There were a couple places where I p- was pretty sure I was seeing the shadow of the boom mic as well. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, because you would in a situation like that. Um, one thing that we both burst out laughing about was the cute little grad student as they're reviewing the tape of one of the people who was being the teacher and was breaking down yeah. because he was so upset yes. just going on and, and they're watching this videotape and he, this poor guy is just like falling apart. She click, He clicks the tape off, Shatner does, and the girl turns to him and goes, far out. <laughs> like, totally, dude. Far out? That is so freaking far oh out. God, that was so weird. <laughs> Okay, but then the highlight. The highlight. I was waiting for you to get to this. We had to watch this twice, too. Um, Bill, uh, um, so the the Vietnam vet guy, Barry, freaks out, and he runs out of the experiment, and Bill chases him. So they run outside, and they're on the quad, and and, uh, Barry pushes him a couple times, and he's like, get away from me, get away from me. And Bill's going, no, no, let me explain, let me talk to you. And Barry pushes him really really hard. And Bill Dix executes, he executes a perfect shoulder roll, which goes into another roll. It, it's a double shoulder roll, very Kirkian, but it's a professor doing the Kirk shoulder roll. And he really, he dives into it. I mean, this guy gives him a shove, which is probably not harder than you might give somebody, like, if you bumped into them on the street. I mean, he really, he does not shove him in any way with enough force to get him to do a shoulder roll. Right. But the other thing is, when we watch it the second time, I especially noticed this. He shoves Bill, and instead of moving in the direction in which he was shoved, you do see Bill turn to land on his shoulder, to make it a shoulder roll. It's so funny. It's perfect. It's great. And he does it so well. Oh, just yeah. like He was just so jonesing for a little action sequence. Well, and it, it reminded me, when when we were at the Sacramento convention, at one point when Leonard was on stage alone, and I don't remember what question was asked. Oh, he the guy was saying, like, what was the... The hardest stunt you had to do, or something, and of course Leonard didn't answer that question. But he said, "Have any of you seen that movie Galaxy Quest?" We're all like, "Yeah, yeah." He goes, "Remember the the line where he he does the roll, and she says, does the rolling help?'" And Leonard said, "I liked that." (laughs) It's true. So just remember, if you happen to be a professor of psychology and someone shoves you, turn it into a shoulder roll. Yes, it's much more elegant that way. Absolutely. 
So that that was great. I love that. I might try to do a little clip of that and post it to YouTube because oh, that would it, yeah. it's like all of ten seconds long, but it's so it funny. Great, it would be great. <laughs> you can all see it. And then the last thing, which was no no fault of anybody's, but the people who did the captioning for this movie. At the very end, it's very dramatic, and Bill has this great scene where he's just the emotional thing happens and all that, and then the the it, the kind of fade out, and then the title comes up and it says. Um, this story is fiction, but the experiment was real, and the events depicted were real. And the result, is that what it says? The results? Sometimes the results. And the results were the realest of all. <laughs> the realest? <laughs> and all I could say was that kind of cheapens the whole thing. <laughs> realist. The realest. The realest of all. Oh, man. <laughs> But I mean, I'm just, I'm just kind of out of breath. I, you know, having, having finally seen this, having yeah. waited for it so long, and then of course you have the fear of, well, is it going to turn out to be just kind of flat and you know, sort of built like up that, in your mind? That other thing that we watched, what the hell was that with the aliens that we got from Super Happy Fun? Oh, oh, the people, the people, <laughs> yeah, people. <laughs> Yeah. This this stands up really well, and like I said, at you know, a time when there's a lot of national and international mm-hmm. debate going on about torture and responsibility mm-hmm. and how far do you go for these things, it's it's a message, a story that stands up. Yeah, it does, and I feel like you know, having been around the university and seen um, people who do psychology experiments, I thought it was very true to that that mm-hmm. when you're running a when you're running a psychology experiment, you have to try to be as neutral as possible to get the subjects to do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And you do have to put your, your feelings aside in order to be objective. And it's, it's a huge question. How far do you go? Well, and what was interesting, too, is to kind of reflect, okay, this was made in 75. As you just informed us, the actual events, the actual experiment was in 61. So that's like 45 years ago. Mm-hmm. Practically my entire lifetime. And... But I, I, I didn't know the exact dates as I was watching the movie, and at one point I found myself thinking, how naive were these people who designed the experiment that they didn't think? Mm. But that's just showing that we have had so vividly demonstrated to us, not just by Abu Ghraib, which is recently, but by Milan, which you brought mm-hmm. up earlier, when people say, how could these nice American kids mm-hmm. do these things? And I think it's... It's been made pretty clear that being a nice American kid isn't the protection that people seem to think it is. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's it's something about the human condition that we don't want to acknowledge, mm-hmm. but it's there. Yeah. It's absolutely there. And people, as they did in the interviews, every, every single person said, I would never do that. Not mm-hmm. me. Other people would do it, but I wouldn't do it. Right. Not me. And they all did it. Yeah. Yeah, and and it was nice that um, as they were showing a montage of different people being the teachers, there was the one guy who got up to like four or something, and I thought it was interesting that he didn't make a big deal out of it. Mm-hmm. He just sort of quietly said, you know what, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. And they, they used the usual lines and said, but it's an experiment. Did you agree to do this? And you volunteered, and it's for science. And he said, I don't care. And he just got up and walked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was very non-dramatic, which I thought was good. Right. I thought it was interesting, too, 
And it was strange at first, the, the one scene, as you're saying, in this montage where they showed the guy who was laughing. Yeah. Hysterically, as he was doing this, and it was like, okay, that's really weird. And then the voiceover of Shatner narrating the experiment said, we found that laughter was n- not an uncommon mm-hmm. response to this this pressure. And I'm reminded of, certainly not situations like that, but situations where my response or the response of other people I've seen to some very intense pressure has been to, to laugh, you know, just at something that's that's not funny, but that's what comes out. It's just a release of tension. Yeah. Because you can't stand it. Like, the tension will just mm-hmm. make your head explode, so it has to come out somehow. Yeah. Man, they really need to release this. They do. It's they, so good. They, we need to get the Akutas working on cleaning it up. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the version that's available is not very good. Um, I, I, uh, no, I I will debate that with you because uh, okay, yeah, there are okay, a few points right. where the the tape kind of goes a little wonky. Uh-huh. But I'm thinking of like the first time we saw Alexander the Great. Okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, you know things like that. Mm-hmm. This is much better quality yeah. than that. Yeah. I'm not saying this is pristine DVD quality <laughs> or even you know hey I just taped it off my TV <laughs> quality, but it's really good. You can see everything that goes on. You're not going, what What the hell did yeah. I just miss? You can, you can understand what's being said. Mm-hmm. Okay, I take that back. I, I say for something that has been out of circulation for so long, mm-hmm. it's in remarkably good condition. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I feel really good about watching this. So do I. This is good, and I'm so glad we could share it with everybody. Absolutely. Bringing a new awareness around 10th level. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, who would have thought we'd actually get to see it after all this time? And you know what? This covers us for thoughtful discussion for like the next six months. Oh, man. We could be absolutely ridiculous until well after Christmas. La, 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 la. Look at his bun, look at his bun, look at his bun. No, we got to... That's not the... <laughs> Okay, at the end, you're doing really good until it turned into this little piggy. I was just being happy thinking about his butt. But the, the wee wee, that was, I don't know. I gotta like reel you back in now. Come on, we just watched a two hour heavy duty drama about people torturing and each we other. We just talked about how tension requires this release of laughter, but I guess in your case, it's totally like cleared for um serious discussion for the next six months (laughs) and i agree with yeah but i think you just balanced (laughs) us out again you just blew our whole silly wad in one two (laughs) (laughs) so now we have to like be what more responsible podcasters again oh God, that was the realest of all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think we're going to take a break. (laughs) I hope so. And come back with a little bit more discussion. A little bit more news and discussion. (laughs) And maybe we'll suck on some more helium.
better now. Wee! Yeah, I think we're better. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're just making our listeners wish they were right here with us right now. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we got sodas. It's true, we do. Um, and we ate our chocolate. We have peanuts there if we want something extra. I might have some of those peanuts. Okay. Um, so there were some things in the paper that we wanted to talk about. Yes. And the first one is an opinion column. This is an op-ed piece in the New York Times written by Ron Moore, who's a writer. He wrote for Star Trek. He wrote for um, uh, Deep Space Nine primarily. And then he is now one of the um, forces behind the new Battlestar Galactica as well. And he's he, written other stuff, too. He also wrote the episode of TNG Generations. I mean... Uh, the one with Scotty, what's that called? Relics. Relics, yes. yes. So uh, he has quite a history, and he wrote this very nice little thing that was published on September 18th, which was the 40th anniversary, um, talking a little bit about why he loves Star Trek so much and how it influenced him, really, as a person and as a writer. And it, it, it's very nice. Um, one of the, I have to say, one of the things I like most is the illustration that goes <laughs> along with it, which is really cool. It's a black-and-white uh, drawing tracing of of Kirk in in sort of Kirkish light, profiled Kirkish light, and it says, my captain, in really big letters, which is cool. Um, And and Ron Moore says the things I think that we have talked about a lot and that most people talk about was that the original Star Trek was optimistic over and above everything else. It was optimistic. Uh, It was optimistic that we would get to the stars and that we would... Um, most of the time do the right thing when we got there, you know, that we didn't know everything and that we were still learning, but that we went out there and tried our best when we were faced with difficult situations. And um, Moore says that as he was growing up, he applied these things to his real life. And I think a lot of people do that. Mm -hmm. It's something that they take away, you know. Are we doing the right thing? And as a society, are we behaving in the ways that an advanced society really should be behaving? And I think those are important questions. Mm-hmm. And and I think those are the kinds of questions that get asked in science fiction a lot, but they don't always get answered as optimistically as they did in Star Trek. Right. With, with a sort of confidence that says, you know what, it'll be tough, but yeah, we will make the right decisions. Um, and, and as we've talked about, too, the later instantiations of Trek didn't do that as mm-hmm. the first series had. There wasn't optimism, but it wasn't the sort of unbounded... Uh, Kirkian optimism that we saw in TOS. Um, the thing that struck me when I first read this mm-hmm. was um, a paragraph here that I just want to read. It says, Kirk, for me, embodied an American idea. His mission was to explore the final frontier, not to conquer it. Mm-hmm. He was moral without moralizing. Week after week, he confronted the specters of intolerance and injustice, and week after week found a way to defeat them without ever becoming them. Jim Kirk may have beat up his share of bad guys, but you could never imagine him torturing them. And as I thought about this, I couldn't help thinking, earlier on he says he's kind of like the the John F. Kennedy Mm -hmm. figure of this whole thing, which is very true. And I think to people who cannot remember the 60s at all, and you kind of, you know, snicker at the idealism of the hippies and everything. This is an accessible way to understand what the best of the idealism of the 60s mm-hmm. was. You know, because you can watch Star Trek. You can't go back in time and, and be at the peace rallies or things like this. But I think a lot of that idealism is is in here, that, mm-hmm. that we can be better than... 
maybe our first instinct tells mm-hmm. us to be. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that's what people would like to see in leadership. That's the way we want our leaders mm-hmm. to be, to be that guy, like Kirk, right. who, as, as, he, as Ron Moore quotes in here, you know, we can stop killing. We can admit that we're killers, but we don't have to kill right. today. And that's the way he should be. And, and I think, you know, when I look at our current administration and I see that they are the people who um, beat up the bad guys and torture them and don't see anything wrong with that, that is so opposite of what the optimism of Star Trek was about. And that's the other thing I wanted to tell you about is the next day or a couple of days later, there was an art, uh, a letter in the letters to the editor responding to this. Oh, yeah. And... I wish I meant to cut it out and everything so I could quote it, but I didn't. So anyway, I'm just going to tell you basically what it said. It was somebody writing in saying they um, they more or less agreed with this, and they remember they remember the 60s, they remember the time and the idealism, and then it pretty much said what you just said. When I look at our leadership today, the future seems really long ago. Mm-hmm. That's a great quote. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, I, I think I agree with that, and it's... One of the reasons, I think, why people come back to the original series, because you need that. Mm-hmm. You really need that sometimes. You do. And it, it's good to be reminded of that, and it's good to be... You know, we, we snicker at the people who wear their Star Trek uniform yeah. to jury duty. But in a way, it's really good to know that there are people trying to live that. Yeah. Not 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 necessarily this, the, the silly fantasy aspect of it, but the, the, the moral at the core of it. Yep, I I agree completely. It would be so much better if uh, the people who run the country were Star Trek fans. It it, it would. Um, the only objection I really have to this, and it's a, it's a small one, is in a way towards the end this sort of becomes like a defense or a justification of the way Ron Moore chose yes. <laughs> the directions he chose to take things in. But still, I felt he had some really smart things to say and some things that were a very fitting thing to say at this time and also in honor of the 40th anniversary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, cool, right? Yeah, that was nice. That you, was really you nice. You get two butts up. There were a lot of things that appeared in newspapers for the 40th anniversary, mm-hmm. and it was nice that this was in the op-ed section of the New York Times, yep. that they were acknowledging it, and they got somebody who knew what the fuck they were talking about to write about Star Trek. Yes, <laughs> yes. Now, the other thing, this just appeared in the paper recently. I was so thrilled to see this. It's kind of a longish article, and I'm going to skip around, but there's so so much gold <laughs> here. It was in the Washington Post, and the headline is, Bosom Buddies Redefined. On Boston Legal, Denny and Allen go straight to the heart of male bonding. <laughs> and it's by Frank Ahrens. And it starts out, it says, it's the best love story on television. Not Homer and Marge, not that cute married couple on Medium, not the HBO polygamists. It's Denny Crane and Alan Shore in the ABC Tuesday night hit, Boston Legal. And I'm going to just be sort of skipping around. Uh, Denny Crane and Alan Shore are perhaps the best example of postmodern heterosexual man love. <laughs> Call it a male-lationship. <laughs> Currently available in the mass media. It has been a long time coming. We modern men have had to tame our eternal cavemen. Alpha monkeys. <laughs> Shake off centuries of reflexive homophobia, escape the mythopoetic, feely thicket of iron johnliness in order to finally, finally get to this place. In the relationship between Denny and Alan, we find refuge, permission, and proxy. 
Here and now, Boston Legal tells us modern hetero man can freely love fellow <laughs> hetero man without worrying about whether it makes us gay, without spending time thinking <laughs> and talking about our feelings, Gag! and without expressing affection solely through physical competition like pickup basketball. Mm-hmm. So I think that's pretty interesting. Uh-huh. Let me skip forward. That that is really good. Can I, I have a funny story that I could tell now, or I could okay save it tell it later. now. Well, I was talking with um, uh, a friend of mine, my friend Logan, um, who has about nine thousand close personal friends because he's <laughs> one of those you know young hip guys, and uh, some friends of his have a um, uh, like a little support group for men to deal with men's issues, as men often do in these things. And he was telling me this great story about how. Um, he, he happened to overhear one of the guys who was in the men's group on the phone with some other people from it. And he, the guy who was on the phone was, was doing this, you know, at a public place. And uh, as he was listening to what whoever was talking, he was saying, you know, um, you know that, that's really good. And, and please feel free to say whatever you want to me. I can't really respond freely because I'm not in a secure location. <laughs> What would be a secure I location? Know. I don't know. Locked in a room with nobody else or something. But that just cracked me up. He wasn't in a secure location. Oh. So just that little comment about sharing their feelings. Yes. You know, with the okay. whole, like, going down on their beach and beating the drums and all that. Well, that's so. how they do it, I guess. Okay. Oh, here's a video. I'm going to have to watch that. But anyway, okay. Going on. Shatner's Denny is a lawyer celebrity, a reflexive libertine, five times married, actually six. <laughs> A gun toter in the office, and quite possibly an Alzheimer's sufferer devoted to making money and the priapic rush of winning cases. Spader's Allen is a hedonist intellectual, always ready with a Wildean riposte, (laughs) self-destructive and self-loathing, willing to hire thugs to rough up a foe and hating himself for doing it. They are both wounded, deeply flawed characters, at once lovable, pitiable, and noble in their majestic ruin. (laughs) Perhaps it's not surprising that the person who pens most of Shatner and Spader's lines is a woman. Yay! I didn't know this. Janet Leahy, we should interview her, is the executive producer and a writer for Boston Legal. I think of their relationship as having sex with women, but they're married to each other, she says. Totally. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Now they they get into it, and they they interviewed uh, Shatner and Spader and some other people. It's a funny, uh, this is Spader talking, it's a very funny friendship that Bill and I have and that Denny and Alan have. It really is. We go together. And then it goes on to tell us. <laughs> is, is that like we go together like, you know. Um, we go together <laughs> like Shangalan, yeah. Like exactly. that or is that like we're going together? Oh, wow. <laughs> we go together. Wow. I don't know. Okay, like their characters, Shatner and Spader are quite different. Their Boston Legal co-star, Renée Abourgeois-Junois, says that if Shatner's approach to a scene doesn't work, he'll try something else, unfazed by failure. Spader prepares meticulously for each scene and makes laser-like choices. I think that when two people are so different, they have an understanding of that, and they tend to forgive everything the other does, Spader says. If you start from the premise that you're dichotomous in so many ways, you forgive. Bill and I are like that, and Alan and Denny are like that. I think that's really interesting. Definitely. I wonder if um, Spader is still putting music on Bill's iPod. Was it Spader? You and I were the ones who speculated. I, I about am that. so convinced that it was him. I really am. <laughs> I just, I just think it was. 
What distinguishes the characters' friendship is their deep involvement in each other's lives. Alan often acts as Denny's conscience, and there's a willingness to rebuke each other when necessary or absorb the other's anger that's more commonly found in a marriage. They even enjoy how they drive each other mad. Somehow they feed off of it, Spader says. They are exactly what they need, whether it be challenging or provoking the other <laughs> person or supporting and nurturing them. Oh, nurturing. Oh, Shatner wonders <laughs> if the relationship might be... How do you pronounce it? Atavistic? Atavistic. Atavistic. Okay. And here's the Shatner quote, and it's, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. The prehistoric men would go out and try and find a mastodon with their spears and their rocks, Shatner begins, also speaking from California during a break in filming. We've interviewed the man before, and so recognize a good quote is unspooling and stick with him. <laughs> so Bob went left and George went right, and Fred decided to go in the middle and stick the spear in the stomach of the mastodon, and George had to help save Fred. It became a bonding thing that is not seen too much in our civilization today, probably because we have no mastodons. That's probably true. But is seen a great deal in the military, where combat becomes the activity of the moment. It's possible to rationalize this relationship on Boston Legal in the war of life that is being faced by the lawyers in this firm. They are bonded in that kind of unity. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a pretty... I think on, so. On the spot, and I mean, you know, right on yeah. target analysis. And, and I think we've we've kind of gotten that in a couple of episodes during the balcony scenes, where it's very much Denny and Alan, you and me against the world. You know, yes. we're the only two like us. There's nobody else like us, and it's us versus everybody else. And if you weren't here, I wouldn't enjoy this firm. Right. 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 Now this is. Uh, I'll, I'll quit reading in a minute because this is the end of the <laughs> article. But I do want to. Read this because I didn't know it, and it's great. Shatner took Spader and his girlfriend to a tennis tournament over the summer. Even better, Shatner, a longtime breeder of quarter horses, recently bought an American saddle horse and named it Alan Shore. (laughs) It's the perfect horse for the Alan Shore character, Shatner says. He's puffed up, he's marvelous, he's jaunty, but very steady. Shatner says that he's looking for a horse to name Denny Crane, which naturally makes us ask, what kind of horse would it be? Shatner laughs. A sweaty, wild-gated horse who doesn't know whether to perform or sire. <laughs> Aren't those the same thing? Performing, siring? I thought okay, that was listen it. to this. If this were a different era, someone would no doubt take this opportunity to weigh in with some Freudian homo-equino claptrap. <laughs> Thankfully, we're past that. I just think that was a great article, That's and I, I skipped a lot of it. <sighs> It, it's long. It's four pages. It's long. And they they go into a lot of detail. But that is just, that is great. That I is love so the quotes they got from them. Mm-hmm. I love uh, the take on the characters, mm-hmm. that, that they explain it so well and how unique this is to see. And finding out that a woman is writing most of those scenes. That is great. And the fact that Shatner's naming his horses Alan Shore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, can you imagine? He's out there. Come here, Alan. Come on. Get over here. Come on. Come on, Alan, you bastard. Get over here. <laughs> Lift that hind leg up. Oh, um, man. That's so funny. Get over here or I'll shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> Pick up the pace, Alan. Let's go. So I find that um, a very interesting article, and that came out right around the time of the the first uh, episode, episode of the season. Yeah. So that's a good good promo, I think. It is. I think that's Great wonderful. Great thing to have in the Washington and, Post. And I think they're absolutely right. You know, that is such an interesting relationship, and... and uh, they're clearly, I, I felt like in the first episode that we talked about last time, they're really setting it up for more stuff to happen, which is good, you know, mm-hmm. because it would have been very easy for them to kind of let that go the way it was going. 
um, and just have sort of interesting and quirky things happen. But I feel like they're revving up for something big that's going to happen between them or with mm-hmm. them. Yeah, that'd be cool. Okay, the final thing we have is this, the Uber Geek moment. It really is. Um, we want you, our listeners, to respond to a cry for help. This I found on Craigslist, source of many wonderful things. We love Craigslist. The headline is, Fluent Klingon Linguist Needed for Witty Retort. <laughs> now, first of all, I didn't know wit was really a requirement in Klingons. <laughs> but I want to read you this uh-huh, ad. Uh-huh. If you are reading this post, you have probably experienced the same thing as I and dozens of other witty geeks. A visit to the Star Trek experience at the Vegas Hilton. Mm-hmm. And, as the gravitational pull would prescribe, you have found your face in a warp core breach cocktail, possibly after having eaten half of your wrap of con, <laughs> when a full-on Klingon comes to your table to engage you in aggressive banter. Mm-hmm. If he asks you if you are familiar with the second law of thermodynamics, what can you say? Even as an astrophysicist, when confronted by a roving Klingon in Vegas... You get a little tongue-tied. Mm-hmm. Please, tell us how to respond. I would like to say, in Klingon... Uh-huh. It's a script now. <clears throat> language is the house of being. In its home, man dwells. I'm not sure if you are welcome. Ooh. Can you make some other suggestions as to witty retorts? Can you spell them phonetically in Klingon <laughs> slash English? Or can you just call my VM and leave the quote, then its translation, then say it slowly again? Thanks ever so much. That's brilliant. I wish we could call and find out what the responses were like. Oh, it's too late at night. Damn, yeah, that's We can't a call good now. Idea. Yeah, maybe we should do that uh, Monday or something. Maybe I should contact this person. You and should ask tell them. It's for a, what it's the for a response has been. Um, mm. uh, but I've got to say, I'm not even sure I understand the retort that he's asking. I mean, that he. Oh, that he's asking for. So he's saying, language is the house of being. In its home, man dwells. I'm not sure if you are welcome. So you, Klingon, are not welcome in the, the house of language. I understand that. Yeah. But why is that a response to the second what's law? the second law of thermodynamics? Oh, I don't know. What is the second law of thermodynamics? If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. I think that's it. <laughs> we, we can look it up. I'm pretty sure. But I'm just saying, you know. I don't know. <laughs> Let's type it into Wikipedia. <laughs> Second law of Thermopolis. No, thermodynamics. This is live on the air. Second law of thermodynamics. Heat cannot of itself pass from a colder body to a hotter body. They needed a law for that? Yeah, it's about the directional flow of heat in relationship to work. So heat flows from... And it basically has to do with... Why you yell, get away from me, when a cold person tries to snuggle you and you're a hot person. Exactly. So it's snuggling. It's the law of <laughs> it's snuggling. It's the law of snuggling. It's the law of snuggling. So is the third one the law of spooning, like how you have to fit? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So, uh, yeah, that's the second law. It's Wikipedia hmm. says so. I have no idea why that response is a retort. <laughs> or why it's witty. I, I have no idea. I don't know what that means. I don't know why a Klingon would be asking you if you were familiar with the second law of thermodynamics. Well, it seems to me a Klingon would be more likely coming up to you comparing your starship to a garbage scow. Exactly. Exactly that. 
In which case you say, laddie, don't you think you better rephrase that? Or, you know, putting down a plate of squirming food in front of you and daring you to eat it or something like yeah. that. You know, that seems more Klingon-ish uh-huh. to me. Right. I don't know. Or, I don't know, the Klingons that they have at the Star Trek experience are probably come up and try and sell you something and threaten to kill you if you don't buy it. And I think the ones there, their pain sticks are made of cotton candy. I, you're right. I think so. <laughs> I'm going to contact this person. I think you should. I'd love to hear what and, kind of uh, and and ask what kind of response he or she got. And have they now gone to Vegas and had this experience? And and were the Klingons suitably intimidated and ran off in Klingon pink tears? I want to know. I want to know. The world is waiting. So, listeners. I'm not going to read the phone number in the air. That no, would be too cruel. No. You, but can, you can go to Craigslist and find it if you, you really want to um, do as as he asks and leave the quote. Then it's translation. Then say it slowly. Fluent Klingon okay. linguist needed for a witty retort. That's the headline for this one. And it's kind of cute, you know, the assumption that the Vegas Klingons actually do speak fluent Klingon yeah. themselves. They might, actually. I don't know. I mean, they, they, they... Okay. I know you can find geeks who will dress up as Klingons and... I bet a number of them do know some Klingon, but fluent? As much as you could be fluent, which means you'd know a bunch of words and you could put them together in any order that you want to. Mm-hmm. That probably passes And if you're fluent. Klingon, you're kind of counting on the head ridges intimidating people so much they're not going to correct your grammar. Yeah, and walking around in the kiss outfits and, you know, <laughs> with the weapons and the blood wine and all that. What is that song? They something, something, something and dressed in gold lame. The make the USS makes shit. No, the make shit. What is with the Klingons? <laughs> oh, I. They look like Puerto Ricans and they're dressed in compliment. Love that. Yep, that is true. Maybe we should play that song at the end of the show. Oh, I would love to play that song. I love the make That's shit. That's one of my favorites. So bounce the gravitational particle beam <laughs> off the main deflector dish. dish. That's the way we do it, lads. We're making shit up as we wish the Klingons and okay, you'll hear it. You don't need to hear it from us. We've been ridiculous enough. We've we've used up all of our serious brownie points totally. <laughs> and blown them on our silliness. Oh, I think that's it. I think that is more I than think it. That is more than it. Absolutely, positively. Um, so, uh, just FYI, as we found out tonight, they are not showing the remastered Star Trek episodes at the same time on the same night in our area. Which that would we, be too logical. We think that that just kind of sucks. So if you're planning on watching them or taping them, check your local listings because they're likely to change for no apparent reason. Absolutely. And we think it's kind of stupid, but, you know, that's what they did. Uh, Okay, so next time I think we're going to have some more reviews and probably an episode. I think we're going to do an episode next time. Okay. Boston Legal. Oh, definitely. And probably... More Bill news, because there's always Bill news. Always. He's always doing things. Yeah. (sighs) (laughs) That man. Good night. (sighs) I was stranded on a planet. Just me and Spock, we met a nasty Nazi alien, he locked our asses up. We found a hunk of crystal and a metal piece of bed. We made a laser phaser gun and shot him in the head. Bust a move, dog. 
I was standing on the bridge when Sulu came to me. His eyes were full of tears. He said, Captain, can't you see? The ship is gonna blow to something I besiege. I grabbed the treble and some chewing gum and stopped the Warcore Bridge. And I say, bounce the graviton particle beam off the main deflector dish. That's the way we do things, lad. We're making shit up as we wish. The Klingons and the Romulans pose no threat to us. Cause if we find we're in a bind, we just make some shit up. Though he's just a child And some think him a twit Wesley is the master When it comes to making up some shit He's the guy you want with you When you go out in space Now only he could beam Those pimples off his face And if you're at a party On the Starship Enterprise And the karaoke player Just plain old up and dies Set up a neutrino field Inside a can of peas Hold on to Jordy's visor and sing into Data's knee And I say, bounce a graviton particle beam Off the main deflector dish That's the way we do things, lad We're making shit up as we wish The Klingons and the Romulans pose no threat to us Cause if we find we're in a bind We just make some shit up Cisco's on a mission to go no bloody place He loiters on a space station Above Bajoran space The wormhole opened up And now they come from near and far We'll keep the booze But please send back the fucking Jem'Hadar What is with the Klingons Remembering the day They looked like Puerto Ricans And they dressed in gold lame Now they look like heavy metal Rockers from the dead With leather pants and frizzy hair And lobsters on their heads Say, bounce a graviton particle beam off the main deflector dish. That's the way we do things, lad. We're making shit up as we wish. The Klingons and the Romulans, they pose no threat to us. Cause if we find we're in a bind, we just make some shit up. Well, I was stuck on Voyager, pounding on the door. When suddenly it dawned on me, I've seen this show before. Perhaps I'm in a warp bubble and slightly out of phase, cause it was way back in the 60s when they called it Lost in Space. We were looking for a way to make the rating soar, so we orchestrated an encounter with the board. Normally you think that that would get us into shit, but this one has a smashing ass and a lovely set of tits. I say, bounce a graviton particle beam off the main deflector dish. That's the way we do things, lad. We're making shit up as we wish. The Klingons and the Romulans pose no threat to us. Cause if we find we're in a bind, we're totally screwed. But never mind, we'll pull something out of our behind. We just made some shit up. (laughs) 